This morning we are back in the book of Revelation. After taking December and January off uh, for the seasons of Advent and Christmas and then to have that four-week uh, mini-series on an ECC rule of life, we are ready to jump back in. So a bit of a quick review would be helpful, I think, and it is just a bit of a review. Chapters 1 and 2 of introduction are the introduction uh, of the book, John, the author who may or may not be the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. John is imprisoned. He is being persecuted for his faith. He's on the island of Patmos. He has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, and Jesus tells him to write down what he sees and to send it to seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives John seven individual prophetic words for each of these seven real first century churches. As you often say, uh, Revelation was written for us, but it was not written to us. It was written for us, but not to us. It was written to these seven churches, though it can still speak to us today. In chapter 4, John's vision takes him through an open door in the heavens where he enters the throne room. He encounters four living creatures and 24 elders surrounding the throne and the one who sits on the throne and worshiping him. The one who sits on the throne is God. In chapter 5, John sees a scroll in the hands of the one who sits on the throne. This scroll is sealed with seven seals. When an angel asks who is worthy to break open the seals and open the scroll, John realizes there is no one worthy to do that, and he weeps because we will not know what God has to say to us. Then one of the elders says that the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the scroll. John turns to see the lion but instead he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The lamb is Jesus. He takes the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the thousands upon thousands of angels encircle the throne and worship the lamb and God who sits on the throne. In chapter 6, the Lamb begins to open the seven seals that seal up the scroll. With each of the first four seals that are broken, a voice cries out, Come! And one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride forth, and they bring with them four different types of judgment. Conquest, war, injustice and poverty, and death. These horses are pictures of life on planet Earth in between Jesus' ascension after his resurrection and Jesus' second coming. The conditions described uh, as each of these horses rides forth are already with us. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are already here, and they have been here for a very long time. When the fifth seal is open in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, John sees the souls of those who have been martyred. They cry out from underneath the altar, and they ask, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. They cry out for justice. They cry out for God to judge those who have abused and martyred them, but they are told, not yet. They must wait a bit longer. This is not the end. There is more suffering and difficulty yet to come. Chapter 7 contains two of the ten interludes we find in the book of Revelation. These interludes are brief breaks from all the judgment and the action going on to give us insight into a more cosmic perspective. Scholar Scott McKnight says that the purpose of these interludes is, quote, to suspend our fear about Babylon and form within us a deeper allegiance to the Lamb who reigns from the middle of the throne. 
These interludes in chapter 7 answer the question, who can stand when God's judgment comes? That question is asked at the end of chapter 6. The answer, those who have been sealed and protected by God, they will be able to stand on judgment day. Chapter 7 then ends with the promise that one day God will wipe every tear from our eyes. In chapter 8, the seventh seal is finally opened and there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. It is as if all of heaven is struck silent with the awesomeness of God and is waiting on pins and needles, on tiptoe, to see what God will do next. Will He finally act? The cycle of seven seals is the first of three cycles of seven. Revelation 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, then introduces the second cycle of seven, the seven trumpets. That flow is then immediately interrupted by a very brief interlude that answers the cry of the martyrs back in chapter 6. Those who had been martyred for their faith cried out for justice from under the altar. They were told again it was not yet time. They needed to wait a bit longer. The end was not yet. Revelation 8, 3 through 5 is a picture of the end. An angel burns incense in a censer, lays that censer on the altar in front of God's throne. The smoke from the incense rises before God along with the prayers of God's people, some of them the very same martyrs that we heard cry out in chapter 6. Then in verse 5 we read this. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The prayers of the martyrs are being answered. This is Judgment Day language. This kind of language in the Old Testament is used to talk about the great and terrible day of the Lord. And this language from verse 5 here in chapter 8 will be repeated at the end of the vision of the seven trumpets and again at the end of the seven bowls of God's wrath, almost verbatim. You can find it in chapter 11, verse 19, and in chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. This repetition of this language at the end of each of these visions tells us that these cycles, these three cycles of seven, are speaking about the same basic things, the same basic time period, but in different ways and from different points of view. To take these cycles of seven as literal and linear doesn't make sense. Otherwise, Judgment Day comes three times, and nobody needs that. One will do. Rather, what we have is a sort of slow-motion, instant replay of the same events from different angles. They tell of the suffering and of the judgment and the consequences of sin that come against us in the centuries between Christ's first coming and His second coming. And then they promise that one day judgment will come and justice will be done, eventually. So if you currently receive the uh, daily scripture emails, you would have read the entire account of all three of these cycles of seven this past week. They are found in all of chapters 6, 8, and 9, the last part of chapter 11, which I began to read to you right at the beginning there, and then all of chapters 15 and 16. And mixed in there and in between them are some of these, well, the rest of the ten interludes that we find in the book of Revelation. As you read them, or if you read them, you will notice differences in them to be sure. But you will also see many similarities. 
I put that list that's up on the screen in the Bible app live event. Let's do a little detour here because I like to do this every once in a while. Uh, a couple things. If you would like to receive our daily scripture emails, you can sign up for them in that Bible app live event that we talk about by clicking on the communication card link. The Bible app looks like that. You can get it wherever you get your apps. Uh, sign into it. Turn on your location services. Hit the little more thing at the bottom where the three lines are, events, and we should pop right up. If you'd rather do it, you can just subscribe to the daily email uh, or to prayer emails or our e-letter our e by going to ecclife.net slash subscribe. So we have already spent two weeks on the seven seals back in November. So we will not be walking through either the trumpets or the bowls line by line. You're either disappointed by that or you're saying, thank God, one of the two. Because there's simply... Um, Another way, to, another way to view what happens back in chapter 6. So just a retelling of it, reshaping of it, looking at it from a different angle. Now, although they do intensify as they go, all three cycles, seals, trumpets, and bowls, show us what it is like to live on a fallen planet overrun by injustice, greed, violence, and death using over-the-top, symbolic, apocalyptic imagery to do so. And each of these cycles contains imagery of the day of the Lord, Judgment Day. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's like watching an instant replay of a confusing and controversial call in football. Next week, when that other team plays Taylor Swift's team in the Super Bowl, <laughs> we will see a lot of instant replays. Some will confirm the original call by the referee. Some will reverse those calls. Why? Because we will see the same play from different points of view, different angles, each one potentially revealing something we were not able to see the first time through. We will see video from different angles. We will see it in slow motion. They will go forward. They will go backwards. They may zoom in on a foot or a yard line or go in tight on a pileup at the goal. We will get a fuller picture of what actually happened in the play. That is not unlike what each of these cycles of seven do in the book of Revelation. They give us a different way to look at the times in which we live, as well as those who first read it, and the suffering and the persecution that we must continue to bear until Christ's return. They name current, past, and future realities, and they promise us that these things do not have the final say and that the day of the Lord is on the way. These cycles of seven are not detailed, coded images meant to depict actual events or divine activity. They are meant to symbolize what God is doing on the earth, the consequences of sin and rebellion against God, and later on in the vision, what God will do in the future. They are not to be decoded. They are to inspire prayer, hope, endurance, worship, and faithfulness. What we will find as we read about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls is scary stuff. Author Kathleen Norris in her book Amazing Grace says of the book of Revelation and of apocalyptic literature in general, she says this, the literature of apocalypse is scary stuff, the kind of thing that can give religion a bad name because people so often use it as a means of controlling others, instilling dread by invoking a boogeyman god. It is not a detailed prediction of the future or an invitation to withdraw from the concerns of this world. It is a wake-up call. 
Maybe we're meant to use apocalyptic literature in the same way, not as an allowance to indulge in an otherworldly fixation, but as an injunction to pay closer attention to the world around us. An injunction to pay closer attention to the world around us. So all along, while it is tempting to ask about the future, and there is some future in this, please don't misunderstand me, what would it look like for us to allow the wild and strange and sometimes scary things we see in these visions to inspire us to pay close attention to the world in which we live, to what's going on around us here and now? How might it inform our walks with Christ? How might it shape our prayers or the way we live and move and have our being in the world and relate to one another and to others? These passages and scenes of judgment and revelation are the most helpful to us when we choose not to fall into the temptation to decode them and to look for current events that seem to fit the bill, but rather ask how these wake-up calls might speak to us today. We can tend to think that this is all about the future and then we don't realize they're speaking to us, that we too have things in our lives that seduce us, that make us sleepy, spiritually speaking. And we don't always know what's going on around us. As frightening and as violent as these judgments are, they do not have the last word in the book of Revelation. They are, in a very real sense, a means to an end in terms of literature. The goal, the way the book of Revelation ends, is new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, after all. That's the last word. Judgment does not have the last word. Judgment prepares the way for salvation. And while it appears that judgment is intended to lead to repentance, it never does. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, after pretty much a third of everything has been burned up or done away with on the earth, including humankind, we're told this, chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. The same thing is said of the people after the fifth angel pours out his bowl of wrath in chapter 16, verse 11. The people cursed God and refused to repent of what they had done. The judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls do not bring about repentance. If that was their intention, they did not work. In Romans chapter 2, after warning us not to pass judgment on one another, the Apostle Paul compares our faulty judgmentalism with God's wise and true judgment. And then he asks this question, Romans 2.4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Judgment is not God's way of leading us to repentance. repentance. Kindness is, grace is, the, the kindness of gra- and grace of God expressed to us in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. In the judgments of the seven trumpets and the seven bowls in Revelation 8 and 16, we encounter hail and seas and rivers turned to blood and darkness and sores and frogs. Sound familiar? These images are borrowed from the ten plagues God unleash, unleashed upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. Again, these images are symbols of judgment and they are not to be taken literally, nor should we try and decode them to fit with current or future events. Some of them we may never understand. These symbols are meant to wake us up, 
to move us to prayer and faithful endurance and to worship and to hope for one day God will indeed make all things right. Let's step back to those souls of the martyrs crying out for justice under the altar in Revelation 6, verses 10 and 11. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. The martyred souls cry out for God's judgment, but they are told, not yet. However, at the end of each of the visions, seven seals, trumpets, bowls, there is a picture of just such judgment. The promise that one day justice will be done, wrongs will be made right. The prayers of the martyred souls under the altar will be answered. Until then, we must hold on. We must endure. We must be faithful. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable that is very relevant to what we read here in Revelation 6. Most of us have been taught this parable is about prayer, and it is. It says so in the passage. But it's about more than prayer. It's about a prayer for something specific. God's judgment and God's justice. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God... Bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What Revelation portrays and what Jesus speaks to in this parable is a promise of justice, a call to persevere, a call to endure, and a call to pray. The martyrs cried out for justice. And each of the judgments of the seals, trumpets, of the bowls ends with the promise that justice will one day come. What was wrong will be made right, we will be vindicated, and the final and full coming of the kingdom of God will be a reality. Philip Yancey, in his excellent book, The Jesus I Never Knew, speaks of eternal rewards. He admits that for a long time, he kind of scorned the idea of placing our hope always in eternal rewards. Not that he didn't think they were real, but to use them to somehow help us to get through whatever we were going through didn't make sense to him, because eternal rewards fix nothing in the present, after all. You've got to wait for them. But then you realize that for those who were most oppressed and most taken advantage of in the world, eternal rewards gave them hope. The promise that one day God would bring about justice enabled them to endure. Yancey acknowledges that in the songs written and sung by enslaved peoples in our past, it was God's justice and judgment day that gave them hope while acknowledging that the promise of eternal rewards does not cancel out our need to work for justice, 
in the here and now. He writes of these songs and the hope they brought to enslaved people, quoting him at length. If the slave masters had written these songs for the slaves to sing, they would be an obscenity. Rather, they come from the mouths of the enslaved people themselves, people who had little hope in this world, but abiding hope in the world to come. For them, all hope was centered in Jesus. What good does it do to hope for future rewards? What good did it do to the enslaved people to believe that God was not satisfied with a world that included back-breaking labor and masters armed with bullwhips and lynching ropes? To believe in future rewards is to believe that the long arm of the Lord bends toward justice. To believe that one day the proud will be overthrown and the humble raised up and the hungry filled with good things. Like a bell tolling from another world, Jesus' promise of rewards proclaims that no matter how things appear, there is no future in evil, only in good. No matter how things appear, there is no future in evil, only in good. And in the meantime, the book of Revelation calls upon us to be faithful and to walk the way of Christ for it is not yet the end. Several years ago, I introduced you to a brief statement of faith that we can say to ourselves whenever we feel overwhelmed by life's circumstances and sorrows. It is a statement that I learned from James Bryan Smith, author of the Good and Beautiful God series of books, and I'm going to invite you to say it with me. It is a statement we can declare to ourselves, we can declare it to the heavens and to whatever opposition or difficulty we may be facing. So I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to say this together. With conviction, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. One more time. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. For both now and in the world to come, the reality is that God's kingdom belongs to us. Whatever you may be going through right now, Wherever in life you may long for a better day, for healing, for deliverance, for victory, for vindication, or for justice, let us remember these truths and surrender these things to God, even as we work hard toward justice and healing and a better day and cry out to God for deliverance and for answers. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for these difficult passages in the book of Revelation. We thank you that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you hear our prayers, that you know our hearts and our pain, and that you will one day deliver us. We pray, Lord, for the strength to endure. We pray, Lord, for the faith that we need, for faithfulness in prayer, for faithfulness in following Jesus all the way to the end. And we pray, Lord, you give us wisdom to fight where we can fight, to change things where you can change things, but to know that in the end you are sovereign and you are taking us to a better place, a day when all wrongs will be made right. We thank you, Lord God, for that reality. We pray that you enable us to live into it this day, this week, and always. In Jesus' name.